You know, our kids really get a rough go of it. What we often expect of them at a young age can far outweigh what their brain can actually manage. And we often don't even realize we're doing it. Today, we're chatting again with Alison Davies, who creates online resources for parents, educators, and support staff, and works with schools to deliver professional development around the topics of childhood brain development and the use of music as a regulatory tool. Today, we're chatting about the importance of predictability for children, hyperactivity, why it happens, and how to support your child's hyperactivity without having to focus on its related behaviours, and Ali's family's journey from homeschooling to schooling. This is part two of my chat with Ali, and you can catch the first part of our conversation in last week's episode, but right now we're going to jump right back where we ended our last episode. Welcome to Raising Wildlings, a podcast about parenting, alternative education, and stepping into the wilderness, however that looks, with your family. Each week, we'll be interviewing experts that truly inspire us to answer your parenting and education questions. We'll also be sharing stories from some incredible families that took the leap and are taking the road less travelled. We're your hosts, Vicky and Nikki from Wildlings Forest School. Pop in your headphones, settle in, and join us on this next adventure. A need of want to talk about your brain equals behavior course because I, I've, I haven't done it myself, but I've heard spectacular things about it. One of the top, A, let's talk about what that is and what's involved in it. But also after we've done that, I'd love to chat about hyperactivity because I know that's one of the topics that you cover in there. And we haven't actually discussed that at all on our podcast ever so far. So I'd love to talk to you about that. But first, can you talk to us about what is in brain equals behavior? So Brains Equal Behaviours is my 10-week e-course that came about because in about two, I, I, I created it in 2016 and at this time I was diagnosed as autistic. I prefer the word identified. Um, mm-hmm. And my daughter was identified as autistic and we had a lot of stuff going on. We live in a very regional place where we were on a, we were on a wait list for 18 months. Mm see from the time we got a referral to a pediatrician it was 18 months before we got to have our very first appointment so in that time we were sort of left to to work out how to support our daughter and you know we found it I found it so incredibly hard I felt it was the darkest time of my life and you know I had been a therapist working with neurodivergent kids for more than a decade already (laughs) I still struggled so hard that I remember thinking if this is this hard for me I I felt like it was my lowest point you know in life that I've had so far I felt so unseen and unheard and no one else was seeing the same version of my kids that I was so no one else really understood it even my husband you know um, the way they were with me was completely different to anyone else and I I didn't feel like people were taking it seriously, including doctors, and it was just so hard. So I I thought, you know, if I'm feeling this and I'm a therapist, imagine all the people in the world who feel the same but don't have the background that I have to lean on. Um, And I thought, you know, I'm on a wait list for 18 months. Imagine people who live even more rural and regional than me, people in the desert or people in, like, you know, in the most remote of remote places, what what do they do? Yeah. And so what I did was I put together all the information that I needed for myself and that I felt other people needed. And this is what became Brains Equal Behaviours. And so it's a mixture of 
modern neuroscience and understandings around nervous system regulation and it's trauma-informed. Um, it talks about why behavioural man- management doesn't support our kids. It talks about what how their brains are actually developing because the expectations we have on our kids is far, far too high because they literally can't physiologically, neurologically, they don't have the brain development yet to do a lot of the things that we expect of them, especially in the early years. I wish more people knew that. Yes. I know this is not taught, even though we know this. We know this for sure. It's still not taught at uni and at school. No. It wasn't in my degree. (laughs) Well, mine neither. Like I studied teaching probably 20 years ago, but it was not, no, nothing even close to this. No. Um, And so I, and I put my lived experience because by now I, I realized I was autistic and all of a sudden so many things in my own life made sense and I was having a lot of meltdowns and I was, I just, I just created this program in which I was just really open about including my own lived experience, but also mashing that with the science and what we know to be true um, in a way that's really neuroaffirming and offers a support for people who just recognize that their kid needs some kind of support that they just don't know what it is or how to go about it. Amazing. And that's what, and brain, we're just launching it at the moment, actually. It's, it's um open for registrations right now. And this is the 11th time I've run the course. And this is going to be the final time I'm retiring this course. Mm. Uh, so by the time this goes to air, it will probably be done and dusted. However, <laughs> <laughs> I am going to keep it available as something that people can just sort of um, purchase and use all year round whenever they Perfect. want rather than launch it as a thing. Yeah. Um, that makes so much sense as a business owner. It's 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 tiring work what you're doing, but it's a, such a valuable resource. It would be such a shame to not have it available. Yeah, I definitely um I definitely need to make space for new things and but I definitely don't want it going away. So mm. it's still gonna be around. Um good. And yeah, it's it's a beautiful program. Oh good. So you heard it here, it's still available. It would just be a different <laughs> form. <laughs> Make sure you get onto that. It's I have heard really great things and I would I need it's one of those things I'm gonna to add to my list of, of just for myself as a parent, not even as an educator, but I know it will help me in my education as well. But these are the things that I'd still think haven't filtered down from the research into our degrees yet. I I hope I'm wrong. I hope that that has changed since I went through my degree, which was what are we, maybe fifty true. It was probably fifteen years ago now too. So fingers crossed it's changed, but I had a meet. I had an IEP meeting with my daughter's teacher yesterday, who is a first year teacher, mm. and she didn't learn any of this stuff. We she we talked about this, and she said, "Unfortunately, we're still not learning this." So yeah. it's just not. It's just, and I think it's because we're so entrenched in these behavioral paradigms that yeah. that the people who are running the systems and in making the big decisions in charge of the systems were brought up in this time of behavioural management as well. And uh, even though we have the science there just to say that actually when we focus on behaviours, we're not only missing the point and not able to support them, we're pushing them away because no one chooses these behaviours. It's not a choice and it's it's almost victim blaming. Yeah, Um, yeah, it is damaging it's not even just not helping but it's it's damaging and we know this we know this for sure um but you know to to basically to change an entire system like the education system (laughs) 
big job. So I don't know how they're going to start integrating this, but I think the answer is teachers and teachers are bloody amazing. And, yeah. um, you know, I have, I've had thousands of teachers do this course um, because they recognise that they need to be able to, to, to integrate this information in their own classrooms. Yeah, well, it's that old saying, isn't it? You know, if a flower's dying, you don't fix the the flower, you fix the environment. And I think this is where the system the system tries to fix the child, but it's not the child's fault. <laughs> so, exactly. uh, so many things. Um, can you talk to us about hyperactivity? We've not ever talked about it, which is crazy because it's, you know, it, it's a very common thing thing that we find amongst children or amongst adults, um, but it still gets a crappy name. Yes. It drives me batty because the mean, people I know who are most successful of adults <laughs> yeah. often uh, were diagnosed with hyperactivity or, you know, identify. I, I definitely agree with the fact that I think when you look at all of the biggest leaders in the world, the successful CEOs, the owners of tech businesses, the startups, mm. the people who are making it, um, they are neurodivergent for sure because it takes a lot of it takes a lot of capacity to be able to fixate on your area of interest or your you know your special interest yeah. um, to be able to succeed in ways that are so big. Mm. Um, and the thing with ADHD, and let's not let's not confuse hyperactivity and ADHD as the same yeah, thing. Yeah, true. Yeah, good point. The thing is, no matter how much research I have done online to try and find any information about hyperactivity that doesn't mention ADHD, <laughs> none. They always it's link. Like, they? It's like the world does not believe that they can be mutually yeah. exclusive, or that um, you can be a hyperactive person or that you can experience hyperactivity without it being a neurodivergence. Now, yeah, well, I, Otherwise, everyone would be classed as neurodivergent because everyone has phases of hyperactivity. More and more people in the world are experiencing hyperactivity now because we live in a very fast-paced, rushed, dense, sensory-dense, expectation-dense modern Western world where we don't really have many opportunities to just go slow. Mm. and. Um, you know, I've created a lifestyle for myself where I allow myself to go slow. However, I am still living in a world where everything's fast. You know, we drive in cars. If you, if you think about how no one in the whole history of humanity has ever gone faster than a horse until mm. post-industrial revolution. And now we're going in cars and trains and aeroplanes, like we're zooming around our body and our brain is not used to that. It has not evolved to a point where zooming around is uh, the normal never because throughout the whole of history this has never happened. We've, we've just always walked. I've never thought about the amount of extra data alone that you're processing just from that and how we wouldn't have caught up biologically. That's crazy. Exactly, and the amount of information that is coming to us and the amount of sensory information mm -hmm. in our our environments are so sensory dense. If you close your eyes and think about the room, you know, think about like a, a classroom, a bedroom, a lounge room, and then picture what they would have looked like a hundred years ago. <laughs> Not even close no. to the amount of stuff, sensory stuff we have in every single space. So what's happening is then that our brain, different parts of our brain become um, hyper stimulated 
our amygdala is hyperstimulated because of so many potential risks. The amygdala is the part of the brain that recognises threat. Mm. So because we have so much sensory information and just information data coming at us constantly, the amygdala is hyperstimulated because there's so many more potential threats in the environment. The motor cortex, which is a part of the brain that's in charge of our physical movements, is hyperstimulated. So because we are living in this modern, fast world, our motor cortex is just running on high alert. That's like that's an analogy. That's not what's actually happening. But that's basically it's hyperstimulated, it's hyperactive. And so it tells our body to move. You know, the state of the brain is what informs the state of the body. So if the motor cortex is hyperactive, our physical movements and activity is going to be hyperactive. Mm. So it makes sense that every single classroom and every group of kids, um, especially where, you know, a lot of families do consciously work on having slow living um, and that really, really helps, Um but that's not possible or available to everyone. And so we are living in big groups of people who are just really hyper-stimulated and hyperactive. And actually Steve Bidulf says that hurry is the enemy of love. Oh. Yeah. I like that. And also, ouch. <laughs> that's Hurry is the enemy of love. So let's break that down. He's not actually saying hyperactivity is the enemy of love. (laughs) Running around like, quick, get in the car. We're late. We're like, you know, just get in the car. We've got to get the butcher. We've got to do this before. Mm. I've got to get my next appointment. You know, this this whole like heightened state of arousal that we're in because we have so many things we have to do. We have to also be successful women who run households and run businesses and have the kids looking the right way and, and participate in all the things we be, you know, present ourselves. There's so many expectations that we just, humans have just not had on them ever before. Mm. And so rushing or hurry is the enemy of love in that there's nothing safe that comes from that feeling of rushing. Ugh, it's triggering. It's so triggering, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, uh, honestly, I think it's one of the reasons I homeschooling benefits me. <laughs> yeah, like yes. my children. It, it's because I don't do well with fast-paced mornings at all. Yeah. It is the antithesis to good well-being <laughs> for me. And I can see it in my youngest as well that, that it doesn't work for him at least either. But oh, kudos to people that can handle it. I I just don't have it in my body. <laughs> My husband does mornings at our place. He gets the kids. He does the lunch boxes and knows what library day is, what when things are happening. He knows, and he organises it all because I, um, you know, well, I've tried, and I'm just a puddle on the floor right. of like, oh, it's so overwhelming. It is. It's too much. There's too many tabs. There's too many. Too yeah. much pressure. <laughs> and that's, that's the very beginning of the day, so it's you can just imagine like how it just go it goes from there. Mm. So this is why. Uh, This is one of the reasons we're experiencing a lot of hyperactivity. However, it's important to note that hyperactivity in itself isn't a negative thing. And like we were saying before, a lot of of people who are hyperactive get a bad rap. Mm. Um, If we are neurodivergent, um, especially if we're an ADHDer, hyperactivity is going to be our normal way of being and trying to minimise that is what's damaging for us. So trying to slow us down, trying to keep us still, 
that is what's damaging because, you know, for kids who, who are tr- trying to be encouraged to sit on the floor without wiggling around, for example, in the classroom, because if they're trying, if they're putting all of their effort into trying to be still, they can't listen, they can't engage, they can't focus, they can't concentrate, they can't learn, and and they're it doesn't it's not safe. You know, if a hyper if a ADHD is being forced or even like gently encouraged <laughs> to be still and not be hyperactive, the brain's going, hang on, something's wrong because that's not their sweet spot. That's not how they're meant to be. That mm. their brain feels safe and in control when it is the way it's authentically meant to be, which is moving around. Yes. I, that's so important, I think, for people to hear, uh, you know, and there's so many tools that can help with that, you know, a spinning chair at the kitchen table, a rocking chair in the lounge room, little things that can make living with particularly a child that is constantly on the move and making noise or seeking stimulation and sensory stimulation can be can be really difficult if you're a sensory avoider in particular. <laughs> but there's tools, you know, to make them feel safe and yourself feel safe. Yeah, and I think you can extend that, at which is something that I have done. We have extended that beyond implementing tools but creating a neurodivergent culture. Mm. So in our home we we have an autistic culture and and that means you know we don't sit down to the dinner table together at night mm. you know things like that that ha- took me a long time to get there you know there's been a lot of feelings of shame and like the family who eats together stays together this is what because <laughs> i grew up sitting at the table every night without fail with my family and we all sat in the same spot and it was a very routine thing mm. and i i believed that that's what we had to do and it was very, very hard. Even for even for years after we stopped having dinners together, it was hard. But mm. I couldn't deny the outcomes. And the outcomes were that one child would eat when he could just run around the house and grab a piece of broccoli as he went past. He would eat more than if we were trying to sit at the table. And by the end of the day, we've used up so much of our capacity as neurodivergent people to that by the time we get to nighttime, dinner time, it's it's the least time of the day that we have the capacity to really do something difficult, like sit at the table together, sit still and engage in conversation. Um, true. And so that to me was a game changer. It was just it made bedtimes easier. It made uh, and trying to come together for our nighttime meal was just so traumatizing for all of us because it wasn't working and I was trying to make it work mm. and so I realized that like who makes the cult who makes the traditions who makes the culture like yeah autistic people autistic culture is my culture mm. and it's okay to work out what supports our needs and create a culture for our family around that and that makes everyone feel safer and it helps everybody thrive and it looks completely different to what a lot of other people do. Okay. I think we all need that permission to do whatever it is and whatever it takes to make our homes a safe place and to make especially that dinner bath bed routine. Like that is the killer. It is the killer for everyone at the end of the day. Do whatever you need, the hell you need to do. to make it easier on everybody yeah yeah and then that allows that allows everybody's hyperactivity to to just be what it is 
there's no like trying to slow it down like let's okay let's let's calm down now we're you know it's time to calm down we we try never to say those kinds of things but there are ways that I can support my kids to um you know like one of the things I will do at bedtime um when we're either listening to a story on audible or I'm reading a story so if when we're experiencing hyperactivity, our brain is in a state of hyperstimulation. Coming in with the Zen or the inside timer or the slow meditation music, it's not going to help. It's going to just create more chaos because it's just missing the mark and we're not connecting with it. Mm. But if we if we come in with something that matches the intensity level, so something fast, and then once the connection has been made, gently slow it down bit by bit, that can really help bring a child ready uh, more towards sleep readiness. And so what I did is I will read the Lorax and I'll start reading it really fast. <laughs> and it's a bit like a rap because it all rhymes, so it feels really good. Um, and that if I tried to read it at normal pace, my son would not at all connect with it. But if I read it fast, he connects. He doesn't even realise I'm reading it fast because that's his normal, that's the level he's at. Mm. But then. As the book goes on, I just gently, without him knowing, slow my voice, slow my reading down a bit until we're finishing up with um, that. And then, unless uh, people care a whole awful lot, like however it ends, it's then it's he's connected with it, and his his brain is responding to my tempo, and so it allows a, a, a slowing down of sorts or a, a, a relaxation of sorts, which does help towards sleep readiness and I do the same in the car when we're listening to Harry Potter on Audible mm. I'll, I will often switch it on to 1.5 speed yeah so that it matches their speed um because if it's too and I find this myself as an ADHD if I'm listening to a podcast and they're just talking too slowly like I can't my mind wanders and I, I've, I have missed it all. So oh gosh, I identify that with so much. I, can, I cannot listen to a podcast at normal pace. No. So listening to it at 1.5 just solves this problem. Um, <laughs> often what you can do is 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 put it up a bit so that you can connect to it and, and engage with it. And then after a while, if you want, you can put it back down to just one. So it's at normal speed, whatever normal is. And then it's you you're able to engage in a slower way um so rather than trying to slow hyperactivity down um there are ways that you can work with it to help reduce some activity level but it's really important to know that for many of us hyperactivity is our sweet spot it's how we're safest it's how we work best it's how we engage and learn um and there's nothing wrong with it Mm. So it's so nice to just be given that permission. And I think, again, for parents to hear that that is the safe box, I think we forget that. I think we, you know, if, you, if you're not neurodivergent, then you assume that the safe spot is where you're at, which is, you know, wanting quiet and calm and order and whatever else our patriarchal <laughs> system has enforced us to do. But it's not. It's, you yeah. know, it's the complete opposite of that. Great, great, great reminder. So I've got two more questions for you. The first one is you went for a while down the homeschooling path and you've now, uh, your children are now at school. I would love to chat to you about this because we talk to homeschooling, unschooling, world schooling parents on the podcast 
we don't often get to talk to people that have traveled both and traversed both. And I really want to, because I want to break down the myth that once you homeschool, you must always homeschool. And that if you don't, that it is a failure and you should hold guilt and shame because that is absolute codswallop. And I'd just love to hear your journey within that. Yeah, well, I um, always, before I had children, I always assumed I'd homeschool. It's just been my way of thinking that that's my ideal. Mm. Um, And then once my daughter was born, it became clear that she needed school because she needs so much routine and so much structure and I'm terrible with routine and structure. And, (laughs) you know, she gets out at school because it it starts at nine and then this happens at this hour and this happens and she likes academic work and worksheets and she's... Mm -hmm. You know, she doesn't creative play. She doesn't do free time. And um, so it became clear that school was what, you know, was going to work best for her. But we decided to homeschool last year for a whole range of different reasons. Mm-hmm. And I was so excited because it's what I'd always wanted. Um, and also I don't agree with the school system at all. Um, I really, from an ideological perspective, I love the, the whole idea of unschooling. Um, and so that's what we did, but I thought of it as at the time, I didn't think, right, we're switching and this is our new reality. At the time, I thought of it as let's just try out every option. Perfect. And if I try out every option that comes up that feels like worthwhile experimenting with, then I'm doing the best possible parenting I can because mm. I don't know what the kids are going to respond best to. But you know, we had a beautiful school. They were going to a beautiful school with beautiful teachers and they were so well supported and their needs were, you know, they had no one ever missed out their sensory breaks or didn't take them seriously. It was fabulous. So we didn't have a problem with our school, but I just felt like what if there's more? What if there's something else? And and what if we get to the end of our schooling lives and I always think, gee, I, like, I wish I'd homeschooled because it's what I always wanted. Um, like why am I not trying out every option that I have. Oh, I love that curious approach. Yeah. And so we what we did was um we had two families live near us that were homeschooling as well and so six kids all up and we you know one day a week that all come to my house and I'd do music with them. Mm-hmm. One day a week they'd go to one of the farms and one of the dads was a blacksmith and so he was giving my son <laughs> nice. teaching my son blacksmithing each week. They were making swords and all sorts of cool Amazing. stuff. Amazing. Um, so we were doing amazing things. Um, but it didn't work for us as a sustainable option because my kids thrive and have a more connected relationship with each other and within our family when they're apart. Mm. And that was that was the clincher. Like that trumped everything. And and it must, you know, it, I think when we're talking about education, however it looks relationships have to come first yeah yeah and it was brilliant because I wouldn't have known this about them like I I mean I think I knew it but I didn't know it to put it to words that for my kids I've realized because they're both neurodivergent have very complex differences and need for space from each other they trigger each other like crazy Mm -hmm. and I knew that but I didn't realize until we tried homeschooling that Oh, I would say we were unschooling. We we weren't actually doing any proper schoolwork. Yeah, <laughs> but what yeah. um what I realized was actually I think they're going to have some chance at a relationship if they have distance. 
And I never would have realised that unless we'd done the homeschooling because it became very clear that being together was really detrimental. Mm. And so we then we went, okay, well, what's next? Let, let, let's, what's our next option? When we realised that this wasn't going to work, like what option should we try now? And it felt right to send my daughter back to the school she was going to because she loved it and we loved it. And we found for my son, we decided to try out another school nearby, which is a farm school, a tiny, tiny farm school. All the kids do agriculture. They're out like fixing fences and shearing sheep. Um, okay. There's no, at this school, there's no assemblies, so they don't have to sit still. And- oh, thank the Lord for that. Can they pass that on to all schools? <laughs> they are horrendous as educators, yet alone as, te- as children. Isn't that incredible? And even, you know, the day, the first day we went there and we were being shown around, the teacher said, and here's the library. And Chester just froze. And because his experience of the library is you're meant to sit still and be quiet. Um, And she said, oh, don't worry, our library is a place for playing. And we went in and there's boxes of Legos in there and board games. And um, so it, it was just right for him. And he was in grade one at that point. And the whole grade one to grade was just 15 kids. So um, it was just perfect. And now we've found ourselves in uh, in an educational situation where both of them are thriving more than they ever have before. And so we don't really need to think about what our next option is yet because this is working. Mm-hmm. But I'm definitely never I've never been uh this is my ideology and I'm not budging this is how it is for us I've never been that I've always been um and I think this is because my kids have a lot of um support needs I've been forced to become someone who will go okay I'm making this decision for now and Mm. then if the decision needs changing tomorrow we will change it tomorrow. You know, there's never any hard and fast rules. But that's such a beautiful way to approach life, isn't it? It's that growth mindset of this is this is it for now. <laughs> you know, could be tomorrow could change and that's okay. It's it's so important. But I get asked all the time, you know, are your kids going to be always in school? Are you going to go all the way to year 12? And I just say, oh, I, I don't know. I don't know what we're going to be doing next week. <laughs> you know, <laughs> what they're going to be doing. If they want to go to school, they can go to school. It, it's not... We're not dogmatic about our approach either. While, again, similar to you, I have my um, ideas about what I'd like to see in schools. I know they're not realistic at the moment in the system that there is. I'm also not against them to the point that I would never, ever, ever send my children to school. I, you know, you can't. I don't think I can say that. Life can throw spanners in the works as well where they would have to go. So be a bit silly to make them hate it before they went. <laughs> I, I feel the same. And I also try, you know, if I could just have everything my way, we would just be a family mm-hmm. who did school and we'd just travel around and learn things from people around the world. And that's what I want to do. Um, but that would not work for my children. And so because I can't have my ideal approach anyway, it's like, okay, well, <laughs> um, we're just going, what, what's going to work? Let's, yeah. just, let's just focus on the next best thing, which is what is going to work. Um, and that's just constantly changing. Mm. So there, everybody, is your permission. Homeschooling doesn't need to be forever. Schooling doesn't need to be forever. And it's okay. Just you do you, boo. <laughs> we only did it and we only ended up doing it for, for two terms. Um, but I definitely got a sense from other people that they were thinking, oh, homeschooling didn't work out for you. Yeah. But in my mind, homeschooling worked out perfectly because we learned what we needed. 
Exactly. Exactly. You worked out what works best for you. And that's what we all should be doing for our families. It should be as simple as that. Do what works best for your families, as long as it's not harming anybody else. I will caveat there. (laughs) Oh, all right. Are you ready for some rapid fire questions? Sure. Let's do it. All right. What's your favorite book of all time? Or if that's like picking a favorite child, what are you currently reading? I've just, uh, my most recent favorite book is called Kissing the Hag. And it is a book about the archetypes of women, like the bitch, the um, widow, the virgin, the slut. (laughs) Um, And it goes through all of these archetypes of women and it is incredibly insightful and empowering. Mm, I'm putting that on my list. That sounds amazing. That sounds, again, really permission giving. (laughs) It's good. It's so good. Where do you go or what do you do to reset after a tough day? Do you have a favourite spot and is it okay to share it if it's not a secret spot? Yeah, it's definitely the beach. Mm. I um, live 10 minutes away from the beach and um, it's a grey, wild, rugged ocean here in regional Tasmania Um, and just give me a grey, wild beach any day. Like wind blowing in my face, that's that's my place. Yeah, it's good. It feels like rewilding, doesn't it? Oof, love it. If you had to choose just one thing to change about the education system, loaded question, what would it be? Oh, gosh, I don't know where to start. <laughs> um, It would start with just stopping it. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's such a good question. Uh, If it was just one thing I would change, I would, oh, I I have no idea where to start with that question. It's hard, isn't it? Um, Absolutely skip. (laughs) um, I would, if I could change one thing, it would be the expectation to go to school five days a week Mm. and it would, would allow children to go to school on days where they feel like going to school is is within their capacity. Oh, I love that. It would also work in our capitalist system where parents just need to work one or two days sometimes to get through and they could go to school those days if the children were feeling good and up to it. I think five days a week doesn't work for anybody. I'm not sure why we we maintain that. I mean, I know we have I know why we have to, but yeah. And last question of all, where can we find out more about your work? Oh, well, you can go look me up online. So I have a website at alisondavies.com.au, but I'm probably most active on Facebook and Instagram. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you look up Alison Davies Music and the Brain, you will find me. Fantastic. I want to just quickly add there that, your, I think that the, the footers down the bottom of your website, your traditional acknowledgement was one of the most authentic and heartfelt acknowledgements that I've ever seen on a website. And I also loved your pledges, your pledge to inclusivity, inclusive language. It was just so inclusive, but it was really beautiful and heartwarming to to see. And I'm very inspired and going to add the same to ours. So thank you for that inspiration. Thank you for mentioning that because it's so important. It it feels so important to me as an uninvited guest on this land to really acknowledge um, what needs to be acknowledged and um, without it feeling like it's just there because everyone's doing it, you know. 
with the I statements that I wrote, these are the things I, I see on my website. There's a bunch of statements like I believe in this and I believe in that. And I did that purposefully so that the people coming to my website would either go, oh, she's not my person or, <laughs> oh, yeah, I relate to this. So that I'm drawing in people who align with me, with my work from a philosophical framework as well as just needing the information. 100% straight away it was, I can see how it could be a a, a cleanser. <laughs> but, but, but for the majority of the marginalised groups, it is beautifully inclusive and, and that's who as privileged people we should be supporting. Thank you. I completely agree. Oh, thank you so much for coming on. I have been really excitedly waiting to be able to speak to you and it's exceeded even my high expectations that I had anyway. So thank you so much for your time and for your advocacy and for all the work that you do for children because without people like you making these changes, again, if it's not in an education system, it's people like you that are helping educators be their best selves for the children in the world. So thank you. Thank you so much. It's just such an honour to do this work. I really love it. So thank you. I hope you enjoyed this two-part chat with Ali as much as I did. You know how sometimes you see people online or on socials and you immediately think, oh, they're my people? Well, that was Ali for me and it was just so cup-filling to be able to chat to her today. She brings to mind a couple of quotes I recently read in Sarah Wilson's brilliant book, This One Wild and Precious Life. And the first from that book was actually by Brene Brown where she said, you lean so far forward, it hurts. And then another quote in that same book by Sister Joan Chittister, you're an agitator in a time of complacency. Prophets speak radical truth. I truly feel like Alison is a prophet of our times here to agitate in the best sense, education, parenting and allied health. And I'm grateful to her and all the other prophets and change makers and agitators and people using their voice, just like Ali advocates for, to stir things up and make that change that we really need for our children to thrive. So I hope this episode was a little nudge and a little remembering that your voice is powerful and necessary and that it's okay to use it to speak up for change. And until next week, stay wild. Thank you.